Well, hello, friends, both uh, those who are joining us online as well as uh, those who are here in person with us. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, it's also a privilege today to have two guests and friends uh, with us and with me to explore as we continue in our This We Believe series. So we have Sherry uh, with us. Sherry is here with her husband, Doug. They serve in a restricted access country and Sam as well. Both uh, work with our denominational mission agency. Sherry works in the area of counseling. Uh, global resourcing has experience in several countries in an active way, and Sam works in the area of leadership and young adult and program development. You're actually going to be hearing from Sam again two weeks from today because you'll all rejoice at the return of coffee ministry next mm. Sunday morning. So... <laughs> And you'll hear about more of our partnership uh, internationally with uh, coffee producers and ways we could help with that. So, uh, Sherry and Sam are here, and we have been working through, uh, as a community here, our Confession of Faith, our Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith in our current teaching series. So we've done a few articles. We've talked about Article 1, uh, which is about the Trinity. We've talked about Article 2, which is about revelation, how God speaks and reveals God's self to us. We've talked about Article 3, creation and humanity. We skipped ahead to Article 10, talked about discipleship. And now we're back at Article 4, which talks about sin and evil. And uh, specifically, I want to focus our conversation this morning on uh, a subset of that particular article because it's something that we don't often speak about, think about, or talk about as sophisticated post-enlightenment Western people. Um, we often think about sin just in terms of an individualistic dynamic, which Jared has described a little bit for us and Wally called us to as well. But there's another dimension to sin that the Scripture teaches that we're going to explore together today. And the Bible uses the language of principalities and powers uh, to describe that. And so in our confession of faith, here's the way that we choose to put that on the table for discussion uh, and understand what the Bible is teaching in this way. And we say this, sin is a power that enslaves humanity. Satan, the adversary, seeks to rule creation, uses sin to corrupt human nature with pride and selfishness. In sin, people turn from God, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. And sin also opens up individuals and groups to the bondage of demonic principalities and powers. And these work through uh, things and places like political systems, economic systems, social, even religious systems to turn people away from holiness, justice, and righteousness. And whether in word, in deed, thought, or attitude, all humans are under the domination of sin and on their own are unable to overcome its power. So, uh, we get this language, of course, when we're talking about the confession of faith, we're, we're talking about what is our understanding of what the Bible teaches. And so, say, well, Brad, where does something like this come up? Um, look, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We preached through uh, Ephesians this last fall, and so this is an area that we just touched down in and then kept moving. And so, I want to highlight it for us today, Ephesians chapter 6, 
verse 12, where in a discussion about a battle that we find ourselves in, Paul says this, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers or principalities and powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So, Sherry, let's talk just a little bit uh, together uh, about this. Um, first of all, like, let's, let's talk about just defining and giving that a little bit of shape. Uh, we've got Ephesians on the table. What, what's Paul saying to us here sure. in the book of Ephesians? And yep. how would you define and shape out principalities and powers? Thanks, yeah. Um, I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that what I'm going to share is based on experience of working with individuals and um, communities, um, nations, a group of nations within a refugee camp. Um, and so, so I'm learning, okay? So this isn't an, uh, okay, I've got it all figured out. So I just want to acknowledge that right up front, okay? Um, this is a great question. How, um, if in Ephesians, the, the, the verse you just quoted, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, um, Paul is trying to address our common experiences and struggles that we, we have. This is the theme of the verse, okay? And what he wants to do is he wants to provide us a deeper understanding of what these harder struggles are rooted in, where they come from. So the next part of this verse, to me, describes the spiritual forces, which is really pretty hard to label. But who is at the root of these spiritual forces is very clear. It is Satan. So we know that Satan rebelled against God, and a third of the angels also rebelled against God, and they were cast out of heaven. But they still function in the heavenly realm in unseen places. And we have stories like Job that point to, you know, Satan coming into the heavenly realm. Uh, we have revelation that tells us that the accuser of the brothers and sisters daily goes before God, accusing us of the sin that he sees us doing. And so in the Old Testament, we have the book of Daniel. And Daniel, it's, it's a kind of an otherworldly story. Um, he's in prison and he has this vision. And he is praying for his people, the future of what they're going to experience. And it says that there is this angel that explains to him, he comes to him finally, and he explains, he says, for 21 days, the prince of, the, of Persia, the, the kingdom of Persia, resisted him and he could not not come until Michael, the chief prince or archangel, battled. They must have been having this epic battle in the heavenly realm. And, and this angel finally is free and he comes to Daniel and explains what the vision looks like. This is like, a, like it's hard to wrap our head around, right? I'll give you just a very short example. In a Bible college when I was teaching years ago, um, I had a young man come to me and he said, I had this dream that was just unbelievable. He said, it was this battle over the men's dorm and he said, I could see these demons and these angels and they were like, it was like an epic battle and he had detailed description. And when he shared this with the, with the men's dorm, the result was, oh wow, we are in an epic battle against pornography. That was one of the things they could identify. They were, they were looking at, what, what is going on? Why is, there, why is there an epic battle over our, our dorm? And it led to prayer meetings. So that was very cool. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Sometimes we get caught up in this notion of like having to name everything and get it all right, you know, kind of Frank Peretti style. Uh, but one of, the, one of the dynamics here I think is important that you highlight, Sherry, is just saying like Satan is at the root of this and we're in an epic battle. So Sam, let's talk a little bit more about that, this sense of, the, of a battle, of a power mm -hmm. struggle. What, is, what does the scripture teach us? Give us some examples, mm -hmm. show us some places in, in your thinking um, as to how does that actually work? What, is, what does the Bible teach us about that? Sure. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> um, for me, well, for, for us, I think the Bible points to two kingdoms that are in tension and at war, right? There is, there is a, there's a dark kingdom and there's, there's a kingdom of light that are, that are conflicting and they're in tension. And whether we can, some people can really feel it and sense it. Some people can see, <laughs> will see more spiritually than others, and some are completely oblivious. No matter where you fit, Bible, the Bible talks about a kingdom. And if, if, if the fruit of some of this discussion is demystifying a little bit of the, the challenge of that, that would be really cool, Brad. Um, and so I go to a scripture that just is like um, evil personified in Satan when he had comes up to Jesus in the desert. So there's this great um, story in the Gospel of Matthew of Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days of fasting. Mm -hmm. And so he gets hungry and he becomes, you know, weak and deprived like many of us, like you ever fasted? Um, you, get, you get a headache or whatever. And that's when Satan appears to Jesus, mm -hmm. it, the human Jesus, fully God, fully man, on earth, just like you and me, and talks to him and, and challenges him in areas where he might be vulnerable, which is an illustration to me of two kingdoms colliding. First is, he says, turn these stones into bread, you're hungry. And Jesus just uses some scripture and says, you know, man shall not live by bread alone. Then he took, takes him um, to a holy city um, and places him on the, the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, kind of appealing to what? Maybe... Uh, Jesus' superhuman strength, his superpowers, and says, just cast yourself off of here, and, you know, your angels will save you. And Jesus, again, he kind of quotes scripture and says, you know, um, again, it's written, you shouldn't put your Lord, your God, to the test. But this third one kind of addresses what we're talking about today. It, then Satan takes him to a mountain, a high mountain, and shows him all the kingdoms, plural, of the world. And I don't know what that looked like. Was it a movie screen? Could they actually see? And he just says, um, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to them, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Like that's an, an incredible invitation to the Son of God, which Jesus doesn't dispute, which is interesting to me. He just says, be gone, Satan, like I've had enough of you, for it is written, you know, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. But he didn't argue the fact that all these kingdoms are in the hands of someone else for a time being. Mm -hmm. And there was, to me, that kind of demonstrates that, um, you know, these are the devil's kingdoms that we are living in. We're born into darkness. The, um, Ephesians, for instance, talks about the prince of the air. This is Satan. He's a liar. He's deceitful. He's a cheat. He's a thief. And, and he is in control in many ways right now on the planet. Um, it affects our evangelism and relationships, 2 Corinthians. 
I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, where it says he's blinded the minds, this prince of the air of unbelievers from seeing and hearing the truth. He wants to keep people captive. And, and that's just, to me, an illustration of kingdoms at war. Can you think of any personal examples where you've had interactions yeah. with people that have given some voice to that? Well, yes. I have <laughs> been for many years with Multiply um, in ministry with young adults. And uh, they give themselves over. Uh, we give ourselves sometimes over to, to principalities and powers in different ways. But here's a, here's a kind of a simple one that happened on, fr happened on Friday, and it's something we can un understand. I was talking to a young lady who's in marketing, and she is wrestling with the power of darkness in retail, in marketing. Four years now, you know, early 20s, and she's like, the content that the retail companies want us to produce is so shallow and... Um, you know what advertising kind of appeals to? It's our desire for more. And she was so tired of this bottomless pit of consumerism that some larger companies are unashamedly taking advantage of and manipulating people. Mm -hmm. So you could talk about a demon. I could say that is, there's a power behind that that she was mm -hmm. wrestling with and tired of and just... I, I kind of, I even talked about Jesus in the desert or here and saying there's two kingdoms at war, even in marketing, and we see it. And mm -hmm. um, so she just said there had to be more behind it that's driving companies to take advantage of people for stuff that's going to perish, she said. Like, surely we could tell a story of transformation, and I could use my skill to do a little bit more of that. So we talked about that as well. But she wanted to see good, not just perpetuate this consumeristic evil, she right. called it. Yeah, this notion of, you know, something, something behind that. Yeah. What's driving it? What's undergirding that? Um, in, in the confession, we use the language of Satan, the adversary seeks to rule creation and uses sin to corrupt human nature with things like pride, things like selfishness, mm -hmm. this appeal to our uh, desires. And so, um, let's talk a little bit about tactics then. Mm -hmm. uh, Sherry, what are some, what are some sort of uh, specifics that you can think about about tactics that the enemy uses mm -hmm. in this regard? Right. Um, I'll give you an example, and I think we all experience this kind of example, uh, sadly. Um, so, like patterns, uh, I look at patterns in, in, in you know, people's lives when, when I'm working with them. So, so, let's say someone makes a comment, or and it's a very deliberate comment. It could be a friend, it could be a boss, it could be anybody, right? Um, and it's deliberate, and it really wounds the person. And if that person doesn't acknowledge it, and it continues to happen, say for example, over time, um, the person begins to be really deflated, right? And, um, and also, they begin to believe maybe those, those lies about themselves. So let's say if um, the abuse is sexual, or if it's physical, then people begin to develop a very unhealthy body image or their sense of integrity, you know, over their own self is deeply compromised and, and leaves them very wounded. So wounding happens not only in our thinking, but it also happens in our bodies and in our soul. 
And so first, let's look at the person who is making these abusive comments or abusive actions. I have to ask myself, what is going on in that person's life that they are repeatedly doing these things? And I'm not talking about abuse only. I'm talking about just comments that are destructive in people's lives, okay? What is at the root of those abusive comments or words? And have they never dealt with their own wounding? And so we leave ourselves very, very open to the influence of perpetuating sin patterns in other people's lives. So sin patterns can come through families, through generational kinds of issues. They can become strongholds in families or in an individual's life unless it's intentionally um, worked, worked through. So sin patterns can be things like sexual abuse, verbal or emotional abuse, the use of violence as a means of controlling other people, the need to dominate to be in control of other people, an excessive force, the use of excessive force or greed or envy, or spiritual abuse. This is really, really hard for us in the church to face, right? When a person uses God language um, and their authority as a leader to validate their actions or their decisions that they make without really allowing other people to voice concerns or challenge the actions and the thinking. Okay, so we've seen when churches um, cover up a leader's sin pattern, um, they believe that they're protecting the church's reputation, but actually the pattern of denial and self-interest becomes a stronghold in the church. And it protects the guilty individual and it silences the victims. And so we can see that happen in recent you know, events in mega churches and we don't need to name those things but um, we know all about those sort of things. So Ephesians 4, uh, 27 says, when we continue to operate in a sin pattern, then we can become under the power or the influence of Satan through this process. And this allows the devil a foothold or the enemy to take ground in our lives, okay? So when a person operates like that in these patterns, harming other people, it's per they're personally responsible for that. And we can't say, well, the, you know, the devil, is he made me do it. You know, no, we're, we open our lives to that, so. I think that's helpful, this sort of... Um dynamic tension between the, the sort of devil made me do it mm -hmm. or I was just under the influence of, mm -hmm. of, of principality power and that sense of personal uh, responsibility of like we choose to give the evil one a foothold or a beachhead in our lives and give over ground uh, to that. And so one of the things we're going to do is uh, starting next weekend, we're going to do a mini series on the topic of temptation, just to help us understand some of the mechanics of how, what does the Scripture teach about how we actually fall into temptation, and then how we can resist the evil one so that Satan doesn't gain a foothold in uh, our lives. So, um, so this is, the interesting piece here is that, again, we're talking about this interplay between individuals, but also groups. So again, we say that groups Nations and structures are susceptible to demonic forces, and these can be all kinds of structures like government, military forces, economic systems, educational, uh, or religious institutions. Churches can become subject to principalities and powers, family systems, uh, structures that are propped up 
or determined by race, gender, or nationality. And these things can actually incite people to do or to make personal choices that they may not otherwise have chosen on their own because that system exercises a collective power uh, more destructive than the sum of the individuals who support or comply with it. So Sam, can you think of examples like where does this play itself out beyond individuals? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm no expert in this either, but you know, working with a church planting organization in many, many countries, we learn so much from the global church and how the global church in, in I don't know how to, else to put it maybe, but just the, sometimes the powers of darkness are more implicit here and not so explicit on display. Um, so, but I would, I would argue none are better or worse. Um, so, for example, what's on display in, in, in the Russia-Ukraine tensions um, right now is ugly. Ugly, ugly, ugly. There is a, what is it, a collective enduring power far more destructive than the sum of individuals. So there's, a, there's permission given to violence and, and an army and a collective structure that has a lust for more. They, have enough, they should have enough to sustain themselves, but they want more. And that greed is in, in every human heart. So I don't want to kind of remove it also from, from myself as well, but, but we see it in the news all the time. It's depressing. It can depress us if we don't move to the authority we have in Christ. Well, talk about yeah. a little more too about how um, it's very easy, you know, people have been on cross-cultural missions, yeah. both to perceive cultural and other dynamics at play. Yeah. And then we have people from the global church who come here and can point out principalities yeah. of powers in North America. Yeah. What would be some examples that you think that would be principalities and powers at work in a North American context yeah. that we might, they might go by other names, they might name sort of one of uh, talking we about have, with yeah, that young consumerism. Yeah, marketing, consumerism. What are other yeah. things you can think about? Well, well, money and mammon, right? The Bible says you don't worship both. We can't worship God and mammon. Um, so that is a huge one. I, I, I think power is a part of our fabric. Um, we see it in our government in Canada, distortions of it, healthy use of it at times. Um, we won't make too many comments here from the stage. Um, how about just, you know, wrapped up in mammon is the, the, the fear of being poor. The fear of not having enough is something I love to teach on with, with young adults. And just going, what did your parents teach you? Were they always storing up for the rainy day? Or did they not realize that they were a part of the, you know, some of the wealthiest people on the planet and they could have just just chilled a little bit, maybe learned about generosity or how to steward what God's given them. And, and I bump into people that are just fearful of not having enough. And I'm like, where does that come from? Who's our provider? Who do we trust? What are we trusting? And um, so that's their greed, unquenchable desire. For instance, in, in my home, my wife works with, a, with, she's an assistant, a legal assistant. So she works in an, in an Lawyers, small lawyer's office that focuses on estate litigation. And she has some of the saddest stories of families mm -hmm. that when estate is up, you know, for grabs, people will take brothers and sisters to court, uncles and aunts to court on principle. 
so they don't get it, they'll blow it all in lawyer fees. Like, it's sad. And that's right here, what money can do to families. Yeah. 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 So, Sherry, what are some other examples that you can think of, uh, of examples of the principalities and powers at work? Yeah, I'll focus um, here in Canada. Um, there's lots of things, but you know, we, we always have to be really respectful of other countries when we're naming the things that we see there. So I want to focus here. But um, in the past, Canada has had um, immigration policies that contained very racist, divisive elements in them. And what drove our, our founding um, early governments to create such laws is really puzzling to me uh, because everyone, all of us are immigrants to Canada, right? Um, we are settlers um, in a land that was already occupied by First Nations peoples, right? So when we note that exclusionary policies, um, racist exclusionary policies were created, they were created against certain ethnic identities. Not all, not all okay, but, but some. So, for example, when the Punjabi people arrived in Canada, in BC, actually, in 1905, 21 years before Mennonites arrived in, in BC, the immigration policies excluded a male person's family accompanying them. So families were separated for years and years while the father worked here and the parents, the children, and the wife remained at home. Uh, in 1907, a bill was introduced into the legislature that excluded people from India having the right to vote, although they had immigrated to become citizens. And it wasn't until 1945 that only those people who had uh, fought in World War II and were from India were given the right to vote. In 1945. In 1962, the government removed racist policies from their immigration um, regulations. There is a historical Gudwara on South Fraser Way in Abbotsford. And on the outside of the gate, there are plaques on all the, the gate outlining these stories and more about how they arrived here in Canada. Same thing happened to Chinese immigrants, right? And so some of our early narratives, they are not good stories. What did this legacy do? The spiritual forces at, at work in our world um, can influence government and direction policies. So the powers of darkness all have an investment of building walls, not bridges. And you know, we wonder, why have we not been able to reach into um, different ethnic communities? And I think these are the reasons. I think the foundations that were laid from the beginning, were, they, the, the walls are still up there, okay? They're, they're just not down. And so another example of systemic evil is the creation of residential schools, okay? And I wonder if our call in this day is, is from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. One verse. It says to uproot. That is to pull out roots of racism. To tear down which is to take away and dismantle by telling, allowing people to tell their stories, lovingly listening to those voices that have been silenced for years, to destroy the work of the enemy through the power of the blood of the cross. 
blood of the lamb, to overthrow, which is speaking the truth in love, over the evil lies meant to keep us separated, and to build, which is laying new foundation. But we can't lay new foundation unless we take away all the other stuff. And then to plant seeds of love, acceptance, and open doors. And I already mentioned um, organizational structures and strongholds where, where sin patterns have been allowed. That's, that's really powerful, I think, to think about how does, how does sin operate within yeah. systems and within policies and within groupings. Um, Sam, let's talk about then this notion of it feels a little ominous, like, am I powerless to resist mm. that then? Mm. As an individual, how would I discern? How would yeah. I stand against that? What does that look like and mean? Or do yeah. I just sort of have to roll over and go, this feels like a big one. I'm just going to get steamrolled. Yeah, how long do I have? <laughs> <laughs> on our little discipleship training program, sometimes we'll teach for a week on just some of the, the theology and then the practicality mm. so that we don't, you know, get messed up with kind of spiritual manipulation language around this. So I just, I want to say that. And one of the coolest things that we had, I think for about 15 years on a little program called Trek, we had Keith and Joan Martins from California, grads of our seminary, with a ministry called Kingdom Ministries. And I say Keith and Joan because Keith was um, gifted in kind of deliverance ministries. And in the same office as Keith was Joan, his wife, who was a clinical counselor like Sherry. And when they taught together, they had this holistic approach to how we deal with sin and evil as individuals. Um, but, but rest assured, friends, um, we, we have a part to play in this epic battle going on. And we can influence in our spheres of influence um, for good. We have authority over mm -hmm. darkness. We are... Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say, 1 John 4, 4 says, you know, you, my children, my dear children, you have already won the victory over the world because the spirit who lives in you is greater than, and sometimes we proof text, but that's a promise. It's greater than the spirit that lives in the world. Or Luke 10, 19, when Jesus, you know, sends out his, his disciples into ministry into learning in pairs. He says, look, I have given you authority. All powers of the enemy were, um, have been given to you. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them and nothing will injure you. And it's just a, an image, not of literal crushing, but a picture of evil for these disciples that they could then go, okay, nothing is going to harm us um, in the spiritual realm. And we can walk with, with light. We have authority over it. And I think... Um, Every little step forward against darkness, my friends, adds to, you know, a reclaiming of ground. And so us today, we have authority over this ground because we're here representing the kingdom of light in the people of God. And so we can say, hey, for the season that we're here, with, for these moments, these hours, you know, Satan, you have no authority to take advantage of our friends and our family or whoever's here and we come against that with truth and with the Word of God. We come against that with, with kindness and love and righteousness and hope and in, in the good fruit of the Spirit. And we want to invite people into that so that it can impact them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and in that way, when we yeah. live into that, it's like when, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, 
would your kingdom come? Like, make, make yeah. what is going to be ultimately true one day, true now, yeah. in this place, in my life. I love the way that Paul reminds us of that horizon uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul's writing about his understanding of how human history comes to a climax. And he says this, after that, the end will come when Christ will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed mm -hmm. every ruler and authority and power. So we know how the story ends. Yeah. Uh, and for Christ will reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things yeah. under Christ's authority. So that's a picture of our future reality. But Sherry, how do we live into that now? What are some of the ways that we can be co-participants in this sense of Christ's authority? I love this part. <laughs> Jesus' last words um, in Matthew 28, um, we know really, really well, all authority in heaven and earth, he says, um, has been given to me. And so therefore, go. And that go is for all of us, right? Every follower of Jesus is a disciple maker, okay? So we're going and we're making disciples, right? Um, and we're making disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded us. The words all authority carry a lot of power because it's been given to us by Jesus, right? He is saying the following, my kingdom is now established. It's established here. And I have authority, and I'm giving that same authority to you in order that you can go and effectively be equipped, right? This is, this is effective equipping, right? Um, if I didn't have this authority in my personal work or in work that I do in refugee camps or whatever, oh man, I would be just really just, you know, it's all secular knowledge and great skills and all the rest of it, but it's not, it's not, not this, okay? So he has the final word over every, every event, every event that has happened in our lives and the kingdom view of that may look very different, right? He has the final authority over nations, hallelujah, Amen. Over nations, what's Amen. happening right now, he has the final authority. Mm -hmm. And over the present circumstances, everything that is to come, right? The enemy does not have the final word. It may look like it, but, at, but Jesus has the final word. He has. When we minister to others, we stand behind, and usually I have a person stand in front of me, I say, you're, you're going to be Jesus, and I'm standing behind you, and, you know, and I'm standing behind the authority that is in Jesus, and he's given me that same authority. And so, um, great example, Brad and I were talking, and an ambassador who represents a country goes to that country, another country, and represents the government. And when they speak, they speak with authority from the govern government from home. And so if they speak on their own, their own opinions, well, they don't carry that same authority, right? So. I think that's a great and beautiful example. Um, and it leads us to kind of uh, talk about, okay, how do we do this practically? How do we live out that authority? And so one of the first things that we can learn to do is to pray out of that authority that Jesus gives us. So, Sam, what's your understanding? And talk to us a little bit about some personal practices around how to pray out of that place of authority that we've yeah, been given. Yeah, good, good question. I love, I love what Sherry's talking about because there's nothing better than watching the most insecure, quiet, you know, voice, gain some authority over a lie in 
his or her life. And it has nothing really to do with uh, the method even. It's just, it's just appropriating the authority already given to him or her in Jesus. And she or he starts to exercise it. And one of the things that we often talk about that this Keith Martins I talk about taught us was just to use the word if. Hey, if this is not, you know, if this headache, let's just use a headache, <laughs> is of the enemy, I command it to now be, you know, healed in Jesus' name. And often it's just go get an Advil because it stays. You didn't sleep enough or you, <laughs> you have a headache, right? Or, um, but there's a, the Bible asks us to, invites us to test the spirits. And so this, this keeps me from saying, thus says the Lord. But hey, I had this thought while we were praying that um, some of those things that you're talking about, they don't sound like Jesus. That's not his thoughts for you. So can I just pray against them? So if those thoughts, you know, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm no good, I screwed up today teaching, I just, I blew it. And now there's this spiraling pattern of I'm useless. Have you ever felt that? I have. You know, and it's like, I need a, my, my wife, my friend, my son. Wouldn't it be cool if a 17-year-old had the authority to just go, Dad, that's not true, what you're saying about yourself. But it won't necessarily end unless I appropriate this, appropriate this authority. So if what I'm believing is a lie, get out of here in the name of Jesus and cancel the effects and then have someone else do that. So that little word, if, is, is a technique and then, um, so I just say to us parents or friends, actually ministers, ambassadors and disciples, if you don't have an approach, you may not like an approach, but what is your approach to spiritual warfare for the sake of your, you know, captive friends, mm -hmm. whether they're, you know, whatever the captivity is. Um, get an approach, think about it, talk to people, and try some things. Because sometimes just praying peace, peace isn't enough to break the hold of anxiety or all kinds of things that, that mess us up, right? Cherry, can I just share a story What's about my son? What does it look like as a parent? Yeah. yeah. I'll, 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 I'll end this, this little thought with just this. My son, Zachary, um, was about uh, not eight or nine years old in 2011. My wife was going through cancer, and he didn't have the tools or the voice to, um, to just talk about it, so he just put it down. And then she came through it, you know, it was a two to three year journey, but he started battling with nightmares and fear at night. And then as he got into pre-teens, he got really embarrassed about talking about it. And we didn't know where they're coming from. You can't just point to, oh, you, you kept things down. But a friend of mine just said, why don't you just get Zach not to just pray, oh, help me, Jesus, give me peace at night. But we taught him a prayer that he remembers to this day as a high school grad. Jack, I, I could ask him if he was up before I left this morning. What was that prayer we got you to pray? It was this. In the name of Jesus, I command all fear and scary things to be gone from my room now, and I ask you, Jesus, to fill my room and my heart with your love. Every single night for about five years, he prayed that. And some nights, he slept with peace. Some nights, it still was there. But what he was doing was not asking for help from Jesus. He was saying, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over scary mm. stuff when my mom and dad aren't here with me physically present. I still have you. Mm. And I have your authority to stand as a child of the king against stuff that's coming at me that seems out of my control, but it's not.
So in the name of Jesus, I command all fear and scary things to be gone from my room. And I ask you, Jesus, to fill my heart and this room with your love. It was that simple. Love it. I love it. Sherry, talk a little more about, uh, so we're praying out of the authority that Jesus gives us. What else do we need to bring into that conversation to understand how to go about that? Right. Um, I'll I'll just, I want to very quickly respond to something you just said, um, Sam, because we kind of think that this spiritual warfare strategies, all these things, they are, you know, we've seen, maybe we've seen videos or I don't know what, you know, yelling and, you know, it's so gentle. Because, you know, when I'm standing in Jesus' authority, I don't have to yell to, to, to get my point across. And Sam's illustration is just a simple, gentle kind of thing, right? So the same thing with what I want to say. If we take a posture of confession and repentance towards things that we know need to be broken in the spiritual realm, this is the first step. And that's maybe in our own hearts, a a deep weeping or whatever. But again, it's gentle, right? So I'm going to go back to the example of the, um, um, well, I'll say, I'll I'll share um, this illustration. John Perkins has a book, it's written called um, One Blood. And he says this, we dare not try to fight this fight with man-made ideas and solutions. That's what we have used for generations. And it hasn't worked. He says, we will be challenged to use prayer as a key weapon of of this fight. So if we take the posture of confession, repentance, this is the first step with people who we see that I work with that are, are, are in bondage to sin patterns. If we agree with God about how he sees the sin and we repent, that's, that's, that's really the beginning. This is really hard when someone has been in a sin pattern for years and years, right? It requires lovingly walking with them in the long run, right? So the weapons of our warfare are not weapons of this world, we're told, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10. I begin with prayer and fasting. If, I'm, if I know I'm going into something that's really intense, I, I begin with prayer and fasting, and, and worship. And then I move into confession and forgiveness. These are the weapons we are told they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I would say even over nations, okay? If I'm going to attempt to bring down walls that have been built in the spiritual realm, I'm going to do that with a whole lot of people. I'm not going to, I may pray that individually on my own, but I'm going to agree with a group of people like we prayed upstairs today, okay? I'm going to agree with a group of people to prayer walk. I'm going to go into neighborhoods and I'm going to do, do that kind of thing, but I'm not going to do it by myself, okay? Yeah, I think that's a really powerful uh, example and thinking about then that work, and I love that verse in Jeremiah, that there's some things that we need to take down mm-hmm. before we rebuild some pieces. Yeah. I'm thinking about your example with um, uh, immigration or with First Nations or with relationships between... Yeah. Punjabi speakers and, and North Americans. We just, we reach for techniques so easily with evangelism or we're going to do this, but this is a spiritual reality for us to, to deal with. Um, so I think that's really powerful. Um, I think I, I want to just remind us too about the power of the gospel mm. Mm. As, as a liberating force mm-hmm. uh, that when we, when we are walking in the authority that Jesus has given to us, walking away from that bondage to sin, 
that touches all of these aspects of our lives and reminding ourselves in coming again under the authority that Jesus has given us to live in. Uh, this is so powerful uh, because it, it's personally liberating. We don't rush around wanting to give everyone else the liberation that we haven't experienced yeah. uh, in and through Jesus and the ministry of the Spirit's work in our lives too. And so, you know, I just want to say if there's anyone uh, that's listening or that's here today and you've actually never taken that step to turn away from the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of the sun, then today's your day. And this is the moment for you. And so we have our prayer ministry team uh, that will be available to you at the back uh, today. That's Pastor Jason and Constance uh, and Allie. Nicole are going to be available. If you're listening or watching online, I want you to email prayer at jerichorich.com. If you've got some specific things that you want us to pray for, uh, we'll make a commitment to doing that as a prayer team and as a staff and elders team as well. Our desire is to walk with you and support you in both the tearing down of things that might be preventing the Spirit's work in your life and in the ministry that God's calling you into, and then also in building up and joining you uh, in those things. And so Jared and the team uh, are going to come and lead us in worship, in song, and a couple of the songs that they're going uh, to lead us in just model this movement for us. They model this movement of repentance, turning away from sin, and uh, we're actually going to sing the words corporately. We're going to put we in there and not me or I into that song because we're joining together in this attitude and this exercise of repentance. And as we're singing that, I want you to sing that and think about it as a prayer, that you're praying this over your life, over your family, over our city, over the nations, over this nation, uh, that God might bring a specific uh, part uh, that you want to pray into and ask for God's mercy uh, and then the second song that we're going to sing is a song of declaration. And that song just lets the principalities and powers know that we're serious about advancing on our knees. We're serious about renouncing anything that is uh, removing that uh, from our lives. And we're serious about walking in the authority that Jesus has given to you and to us. Uh, and so the team is going to lead us in that song of declaration and assurance that no matter what the principalities and powers have said or are saying to you, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so I'd invite you to stand with me today as we move into this time of responding to words that have been spoken to us and over us and as we respond in faith to what it is that God wants to say to us and through us. Let's worship together.